0: Hello, there are a few better people with whom to talk about George Washington, which is one of my favorite occupations, actually, than David O. Stewart. He's the author of numerous histories, including Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson, and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy. But he's the author most recently of George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father, which considers Washington as a politician. David Stewart, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, let's begin where you begin the book, because it's a great anecdote. It's uh, 1758. Is that right? 50, 58, 57? Uh, it's late 57. Yeah. So it's the end of the Forbes expedition to uh, take Fort Duquesne? Uh, uh, no, no, no. Not, not it's right, yet. Right before. Right before. It. But at that moment, George Washington returns to to Mount Vernon, or comes to Mount Vernon, Uh, and he is a failure. Could you explain that? Uh, Could you flesh the anecdote out and explain why he might have thought that and why others, more importantly, why other Virginians might have thought that?
1: Yeah, it struck me as a a really fascinating moment in his life um, because it was such a multiple low point. Um, He was very sick. Um, He'd contracted dysentery um, and had been told if he didn't, Uh, leave the army he was fighting out in the western frontier, that if he didn't leave, he was going to die. And and that would get your attention. And uh, so he he just left, uh, actually, without permission. Um, Now, it was the end of the fighting season. It was uh, really late um, autumn. So he knew that uh, the tribes with whom the Virginians were fighting tended to leave uh, quit then they weren't crazy either they would go back home and sit in front of the fire and try to stay warm uh which is what the virginians did so he headed home uh he'd had a miserable three years uh as uh commander of the virginia regiment uh fighting with the tribes which uh, they were simply better at uh frontier warfare at, at forest warfare than the virginians ever would be um and so uh, he, he he lost. I mean, every day was was a bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, and his men deserted. His men were ambushed. His uh, it it just. He, he honestly, I just don't think he ever had a good day.
0: And he, and, we should. Exp- I mean, when you start to look at the map and think about the the problem that he had to confront, as how old was he? Like twenty five uh, at the time. At this point, he's twenty five. Yes. Yeah. He's a 23 to 25 year old man uh, with limited practical experience in life other than surveying. uh, And uh, and he's suddenly put in charge of a frontier that's hundreds of miles long. uh, And then eventually under the command of the House of Burgesses is is garrisoned by literally tens of forts, uh, each occupied by a small group of his soldiers. And the Virginia Regiment, it sounds small. He's running a, a tiny sort of miniature army. Uh, Which spreads from What's now Cumberland, Maryland All the way down into what's now Far southwest Virginia
1: That's all exactly right And this is the frontier At the moment In in the uh, late 1750s And uh, He gets testy um, And unhappy Um, he, he, He feels he is failing The people he's supposed to protect He's failing his soldiers He's failing himself And so he starts picking fights, frankly, with the people who are his superiors, um, both uh, the civilian superiors uh, and also uh, within the army. Uh, And and those superiors are British uh, officers who, to be honest, think he's just one more Yahoo and buckskins and not really worth ever listening to. So he – basically fouls his nest. I mean, everybody who is senior to him dislikes him and, and really wishes he would just go away. Now, he does command the loyalty of his own men, by and large, which is an interesting contrast. Um, but he knows that he has no future uh, as a military man, which he really did want to have. Um, he knows he's terribly sick, and he God knows what's going to happen uh, with his health. And it's just a tremendously low point and you know we've all had low points and it, it was a time it seemed to me that he rethought his life hmm. and redirected it in a way
0: that is pretty admirable to be honest sickness is a is a major theme in washington's life it seems to me it's one of the i, I uh, overlooked things yeah. uh uh how often he gets really ill at several inflection points in his life, and he is uh, from the beginning um, aware that the Washingtons are a short-lived family, as he often says in his letters, and that the grim king, uh, death, as he call as he likes to call death, is always nearby, and that always strikes me as, as, as something that's a major part of his psychological makeup.
1: I, I agree yeah. totally. Um, that phrase, the grim king, is just straight out of myth uh, and is powerful. And, you know, his father dies when he's 11. He has two sisters who die when he's a boy. Only one was he really old enough to appreciate it, but he was old enough to appreciate it. Uh, And the most searing death is of his older half-brother, Lawrence, um, whom he essentially nurses or, or looks after for a couple of years, And Lawrence dies in his early 30s when uh, Washington's in his late teens. So he's experienced tremendous loss. Um, He is impatient. um, And, uh, you know, the Washington men will continue to die around him. Um, He is the last sibling who survives, frankly, to the end of his life. And this creates that sort of... uh, churning uh, or or uh, feeds the churning ambition that that he had. Uh, And as you say, he was sick an amazing amount of the time. We appreciate, when you look at his life, the advances in medical science that we've enjoyed, Um, you know, an infection back then, there were no antibiotics. You just got sick unless you got over it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as president, he came near death twice, Mm twice. Um, as a young man, he endured a couple of terrible illnesses that, and, and by, I, these are things, illnesses that lasted six months. Um, and he's this big, robust, athletic guy. Everybody is dazzled by how, you know, physically competent he is. But he's got no no better protection against disease than anybody else, and, and he even gets smallpox at one point.
0: Yeah, there's um. Once you start thinking about things like that, you, you start thinking a lot about luck <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and fortune or prov- whatever you want to call it. And there's a, there's a reason, I think, why Washington talks, his, his favorite theological concept is providence. And he is almost a theologian of providence in, at, at some points in his life. Um, but let's, um, let's talk about why this book, um, I, as I told you before uh, we began recording I told my wife oh yeah David Stewart's come out with a book about Washington's politician and she said something like oh great um it's like another and she obviously in her eyes was like another damn Washington book um and I said no no you really don't understand this is like a, a topic that's lying for in in the middle of the road for people to pick up and no one has um, thinking about Washington as a politician has been curiously difficult to people do you want to 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 Let's flesh that out.
1: Yeah, I, it's not an accident. He, he really didn't ever want to be seen as a politician, although he made himself into a splendid one. And so he nurtured his his military identity, and he always attempted, when he ended up in politics, to uh, appear nonpartisan to the extent he could, uh, simply a man doing his duty. And that was the myth. You know, we think of him as a soldier, as a planter, um, as a statesman. Isn't that a wonderful phrase rather than politician? (laughs) Um,
0: That's a successful politician.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And that um, has simply survived. And I I think we've avoided the the term largely to preserve his position in the pantheon. And I, I think it. Blinds us to many of the keys to his success, um, because in fact, and, and this has been a major scholarly activity of the last twenty years, um, from military historians, yeah, you know, he was not a brilliant military commander, um, and indeed, far from it on occasions. So. Uh, something has to account for this amazing success, and I do think it was an uh, extraordinary mili- uh, political skill
0: So it, it, I thought often, uh, as reading the book, of Richard Carradine's biography of, of Lincoln uh, Which was, I think, subtitled A Life of Purpose and Power um, What you're also chronicling is how Washington acquires political power and then proceeds to use it Um that's a sort of a running theme throughout the book. And that, that does, we'll get to, the, to him as a political general, which I think is an important American concept, which is uh, we neglected our peril or, or trivialized at our peril. Um, but the, uh, I once counted it up and Washington serves as an elected representative for at least twice as long as he, if you're very generous and count everything, including the quasi war. Um, as military service, his political service is at least twice, maybe three times as long uh, to elected office as it is as a military man.
1: Uh, absolutely right. And what my, the ultimate spur for me to write the book was, you know, he wins all his key elections. He's elected commander in chief of the army. He's elected president of the Constitutional Convention. He's elected president twice. Um, but he, he's elected unanimously each time. Um, you know, and you don't get that with box tops. Um, <laughs> that was as unusual in the 18th century as it is today. And so I wanted to unpack that. How did that happen? And and some of it we have to acknowledge was luck. I mean, he could have died any number of times. Um, he was the right in the right place at the right age at the right time with the right skills. But you know that's how great careers are built. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a matter of being able to take advantage of those opportunities that that arise, and mm-hmm. and he prepared himself to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the Washington family. Uh, we talked a little bit about death in the Washington family, which is um, a running uh, a, a theme for the Washingtons, as it is for perhaps for Virginian families more than Massachusetts families um, because of certain uh, problems, but people don't realize the Washingtons are not really the top drawer of, of Virginia gentry. Um, I guess I would divide up the Virginia gentry crudely as they're sort of colony gentry, uh, people who are on the governor's council. Um, there are sort of the people that manage to rise to legislative prominence. And then there are sort of county gentry, people who um, of, of the, who never really rise above prominence within their own county. And the Washingtons, are very much part of the county gentry, I would say.
1: I, I agree with that. Uh, his his great grandfather, his grandfather, two of his brothers serve in the House of Burgesses, which is the uh, elected colonial legislature. But you know, nobody notices them. <laughs> you know, they're yeah, they're just they're just there. Um, you know, there's a hundred some members, and they happen to be there too. Um, and their wealth is non-trivial they are in better condition than uh, financial shape than most virginians but not great and they they certainly aren't a, the top rank and then washington has this further burden of being the third son mm-hmm. and you know traditionally in the 18th century the third son was the one who ended up in, in the army um it may be one reason why washington got focused on that because he wasn't going to get much in the inheritance and Washington didn't. Um, his two older brothers uh, got the good stuff. And, you know, he got some dribs and drabs. Um, more poignantly, his mother, who still had five small children to raise, also got dribs and drabs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew privation uh, as a teenager. Not, he wasn't
0: starving, but uh, they were not uh, well off. They had uh, fallen from the, they had even fallen further because of his father's death to a certain exactly. lower economic rank. Yes.
1: And and, and and he felt that acutely his whole life. His money anxiety was yeah. a, con, a constant.
0: Brent Tarter, who's been on the podcast before, has pointed out to me that uh, Virginians didn't uh, privilege a sort of family or status until after the Civil War when everyone was dead broke. And then your, then your coat of arms became really important. uh so the Virginians in the 18th century are like, you cannot be uh, – your, your coat of arms, your family means nothing unless you have money. Um, you have to have capital. You have to have enslaved people. You have to have acreage. You have to th- – these are all the marks of success. And Washington inherits what? Uh, Ten enslaved people um, and he uh, a couple hundred acres, which his mom's hanging on to.
1: Um, well, and she hangs on to the enslaved people, too. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so. so he, and, and I don't blame her.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. She's she's yeah, she's been impoverished by uh, yeah. her widowhood. But she interestingly does not like every other widow in, in Virginia, seemingly, um, you know, there are some famous widows in American in Virginia history who end up being married to four prominent men and uh, thereby command uh, command eventually financial prominence themselves. But she does not remarry. Um which is interesting. And uh, Washington has to go look for his own fortune.
1: He does. Um, again, uh, here, here we are back with uh, Dame Luck. Uh, he, he does, you know, the terrible result of uh, ha- having a terrible turn of fate that his eldest brother dies prematurely, ends up being uh, lucky for Washington that he, he comes into... After two more deaths.
0: Yes, after, I was going to say, after at least two more deaths, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he acquires Mount Vernon, or it comes into his hands. Uh, and Mount Vernon is a signature property. Um, it unfortunately requires a lot of capital to keep it going. But it, you know, it is a admirable place. The Washingtons had an eye for real estate. And uh, uh, those of us who've been there, and I hope your listeners all
0: have, um, it's It's just a beautiful sight. But even before that, um, he's one of the few people in the colony who makes cash. And he puts that all into land as a a
1: teenager. Yeah, which turns out not to have been the smartest move, but uh, he he realizes late in his life. But uh, yeah, he he goes to work because there's no money to send him to school. His older brothers went to school in England. He does not. um, and He's always embarrassed about his lack of formal education. and he goes to work as a surveyor. Um, very shrewd move. I suspect his elder brother Lawrence pushed him that way, as did the Fairfax family, their close neighbors and, and mentors. And uh, he, he makes good money uh, and is able to – creates some personal independence when he's 19 and 20 years old, um, which is clearly very
0: important to him and uh, is important to his career. So death, um, cash, and the acquisition of land, um, wise or not, the, the, the acquisition of land is, is, is favored in Virginia. Um, it means that you're somebody. Um, he starts to also buy people, um, and that's another part of sign of his financial success. And also a sign of his status, social status. The other, uh, the old-fashioned the old way, the way that Lawrence has done it, and the way that Washington does it, is through patronage. Um, could you explain the the, the Fairfaxes and the role of patronage in Washington's initial political success?
1: Yeah, the the f- Mount Vernon is what is now Fairfax County, uh, and the Fairfaxes owned most of Northern Virginia. Uh, their holdings were the size of the current state of New Hampshire, so they were rich beyond our imagining. Um, And Lawrence had married into the family, and Lawrence clearly identified George as the other comer among the Washington males. Um, There were uh, six brothers, um, and Lawrence and George were the ones with the fire in the belly And so Lawrence sponsors George. He takes him to the Fairfaxes. He introduces them. George is this big, good-looking kid who tries really hard never to set a foot wrong, and he impresses them. And they begin to uh, sponsor him. His early surveying jobs are essentially all for the Fairfaxes, Um, so they're actually uh, key to his financial advance. And... When he goes into the military service in Virginia Regiment, uh, Colonel Fairfax is central to both getting him positions and also you can see him try to mentor George. George has a a pretty fiery disposition and he he can uh, uh, get get a little too excited at times. Uh, There's a wonderful letter uh, when uh, Washington should have actually declined battle. He didn't and had a catastrophe. This is the uh, Great Meadows uh, mm-hmm. fight with the French and Indians. And afterwards, uh, uh, Colonel Fairfax writes him and says, uh, you know, the Duke of Marlborough had many withdrawals that were not retreats. <laughs> 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 you know? it, it's OK not to fight if it's a, if you're in a bad position. Um, so he, he gives him. Wisdom. He plays a paternal role, um, which Lawrence had played but was was dead by then. And, and that's another reason why I picked on that moment in late 1757, because it's right after Colonel Fairfax dies. So Washington is on his own now. All the people who have sponsored
0: him are gone, or else he's ticked them off. Hmm. And he's got to make his own way. Well, so we should say that he's basically fallen into this position of uh, adjutant of the northern part of the colony – because it had been his brother's position before Lawrence died, and then the Fairfaxes promote him. So this is why this inexperienced youth of, what, 19, uh, is a major in the Virginia militia.
1: That's absolutely the first start. Um, he, he does uh, execute some early assignments uh, well. Yes. So... You know he has a couple of good innings, um, which are essential because people do remember those, and, and then basically the roof falls in on him because uh, he, he's he's both got more responsibility than he can handle, but also he's got a job that pretty much anybody would have failed at. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so back to the anecdote. Back to set late 1757. What happens then? Well,
1: he. Uh, he clearly decides he has been flirting with a political career, and he clearly decides that that's what he's going to do. He's got Mount Vernon and he's going to develop Mount Vernon, but he needs money. And, you know, the way you got it then, the old fashioned way, was you married it. <laughs> um, and so he courts uh, Martha Dandridge Custis, who is not yet a year old. Uh, as a widow, um, she had married an extraordinarily wealthy man who uh, who 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 was considerably older than she, but also dies youngish. And uh, we don't know anywhere near enough about this relationship ever, but certainly in these early days, uh, how did they know each other? They must have known each other because Washington is on, on in a sickbed for a couple of months. But he, he rises ultimately and uh, goes to visit her and in what appears to us as a nine-day period essentially proposes and is accepted. Hmm. And Now, that's quick work yeah. um, and uh, particularly because she – she had a lot of money. There were – George Washington was not the only guy who noticed this. Um, <laughs> and, and they, they were uh, – and he had been rejected as a suitor in the past as sort of not a promising young man. So she had an eye for talent just, just as he did. Um, and they are an unlikely couple in some ways. Uh, they come from the same uh, gentry stock. But just physically, you know, he's six foot two and, you know, a great athlete and dancer and horseman, and she's under five feet and I believe would be called round uh, or roundish um, in most respects. Uh, One of my favorite uh, little factoids is that somebody studied all the balls that they went to together and could never find an occasion when Washington actually danced with Martha. Hmm. and I I can't explain it. Maybe she didn't care to dance. Maybe she thought they looked funny together. Maybe, uh, who knows? But they were an unusual couple, Um, but her uh,
0: wealth made all the difference in his ability to get started at Mount Vernon. I, I should say that one of the reasons why we have the hardest time knowing the most basic things about their relationship is that Martha curse her. Burned all of their letters. Uh, yes, yeah, and that was standard in those days. Yeah, uh, you know, Dolly
1: burned all of James Madison's letters, um, and I've sort of gotten used to it, but
0: you, you just wish it hadn't happened. The, the, one of the most – I mean that, that – probably the most important uh, letter that Washington wrote in some ways to see the inside of his mind when he had been appointed to c- commander of the Continental Army. What's that? That was in the back of a drawer, or behind, had fallen behind a drawer, or maybe she had say, who knows? But that—that's one of six, I think. That,
1: yeah, and there. and you sort of—I I don't know if he may have intended that one to survive. Yeah. Um, he occasionally wrote for the eyes of history, um, but you know, we, we all we can tell is that they appear to have been congenial for many, many years. Uh, and but but we we it's a very opaque relationship we don't know much about
0: it so washington becomes a virginia politician uh he is elected uh when 17 in late 1758 1759
1: uh yes in mid 1758 he's on campaign actually and and doesn't even go to campaign uh, he's on military campaign and does not go uh, to politics for the position but he is uh, his friends uh press his candidacy he he runs in uh, Frederick County out in the frontier where he's been assigned and he owns land out there so he can be uh, a candidate there. And he is elected quite easily.
0: So w- let's describe the, the early years. Uh, people always love to hear about the electioneering stories about how that was done. Uh, the most famous one comes from a subsequent election where he when he complains that um, not enough money was spent on, on liquor. Um, but how, how do elections work in colonial Virginia? Because this is important to Washington's success as a politician.
1: Yeah, the the governor would call the elections and then the county sheriffs would uh, determine when they would be and where. They would have them in the county seat ordinarily on market day because that's when people would otherwise perhaps be coming into town. And it's a one-day affair and uh, you – it's voice vote. Yeah. and They call your name and say, Albert Zambone, how say you? And you say, you know, I vote for George Washington. And then George Washington is supposed to
0: stand up and bow to you and say, thank you very much, Mr. Zambone. There's that late 1790s memoir, John Marshall running against, I forget who it was. You know, Mr. Zambone, I I thank you. I shall treasure that vote forever.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a personal compliment. So there's nowhere to hide (laughs) where, where you're voting. And the key element, uh, there is some politicking beforehand, uh, usually through surrogates, but sometimes by the candidates themselves, uh, going to uh, public events. Church, uh, churchyards were a place um, before, before and after services, where people talked politics. But uh, the the vote itself, um, it was deemed very important. Who were the first few voters?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You wanted to create a snowball effect, and uh, Washington uh, was very um, sensitive to that, uh, and he clearly uh, mm-hmm. encouraged the sheriff's in uh, the sheriff in uh, Frederick County to call his friends first. Um, if you look at the two times he ran in Frederick County. The first dozen voters usually involve at least two or three Fairfaxes, at least a couple of um, Washingtons. His brothers would come out and politic for him and uh, other assorted Washington friends. And we do have a letter he sent to the sheriff at one point basically saying, I would never ask you to call my friends first, but, you know, it would be a big help if you did.
0: So, well, so that's a classic Washington uh, passive-aggressive move. Uh, we should say defensive offense. Um, yeah, this is a hierarchical society, and Virginia, arguably, is hierarchical uh, to the Civil Rights Act, and and not just—I mean, whites don't have one man, one vote until the 1960s. So we don't have to get into that. But Virginia is an extraordinarily hierarchical society, and uh, the way that you get the bottom of the pyramid to vote your way is to get the top of the pyramid to vote for you first.
1: Uh, absolutely. I'm, mean, you know, just a, a crude fact was, you know, two thirds of the voters in Frederick County were uh, tenants of on Fairfax land. They were renters, and you know, if the Fairfaxes were backing Washington, uh, you probably want to vote for Washington.
0: Yeah. Um, so he joins the House of Burgesses uh, in Williamsburg. How often do they meet, and and what do they do?
1: They meet a couple of times a year, uh, not on any. Particular schedule. Uh, They're summoned generally by the governor. Uh, They do have control over a budget. Uh, It is not much of a budget by and large. The uh, you know the colonial government didn't do a great deal, uh, except in times of war, at which point there really tended to be a lot of fighting, uh, uh, political fighting over this, Um, and uh, they did. Manage uh, uh, just the sort of uh, affairs of daily life that, you know, the recognizing uh, new cities, rec- uh, carving up counties and jurisdictions, uh, very engaged with uh, uh, trying to foster uh, exports. Uh, and so they uh, had a system of uh, uh, standardizing the tobacco exports and uh, actually had. Uh, they did have employees who would uh, grade the tobacco and uh, to try to make it consistent for, for purchasers. So there were some activities. Um, it waxed and waned uh, depending on, on the situation. And uh, war obviously made
0: it uh, uh, more central, uh, times of peace less so. So what are, what are the rules of the game? in the house of burgesses because as you suggested earlier there have been washingtons in the house prior but they hadn't made much of a splash um, well george yeah, you, eventually does ahead. but without talking so this is yeah. this is very strange
1: yeah the the accepted ways to advance are you either are of the top tier of society you know filthy rich and prominent for a few generations and he he flunks on that one uh, or you are a brilliant orator and really impress the heck out of people. And he flunks on that one, too. He he dislikes speaking in public. I, I think he recognizes he's not terrific at it. Um, and so he has to find a third way, uh, what you might call a quiet way, um, which he does. Um, it is uh, – I think, one of the great achievements of his career. Uh, He's not the most diligent legislator for his first few years. He's really focused on Mount Vernon and and succeeding there. Uh, But as he gets more engaged, he builds a network, a, 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 a stature as a diligent person, someone with solid judgment someone who does the work. He was always the most disciplined and uh, responsible person in the room. And you can see over the, he's in the House for close to uh, 15 years, close to 16. There, he's just on this sort of steady, shallow upward curve for the first eight or nine years, getting more responsibility, getting more com- committee activities until the conflict with Britain breaks out which really is the making of him, partly because of his military background. Uh, People do respect that more when there's (laughs) conflict. Uh, But also, uh, he is uh, forthright in his denunciation of the British. He takes a very strong stand right from the beginning. And that sort of uh, determined attitude attracts
0: a lot of support and attention. He strikes me, as I thought about your book, he strikes me as the ideal committee chair. I mean, I, he would be a great department chair, <laughs> I guess no one ever thought of. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, it would be efficient, it would be brisk, uh, there wouldn't be time wasted, uh, information would have been distributed beforehand to the members of the committee, it wouldn't have been an information sharing session, it would have been a time to consider and then make a decision. You can see this in his councils of war, I mean the the pre-circulated memos and the way that the Council of War they, they focus on a problem and they answer it even prior to the meeting of the council he has everything like arranged prior to the committee meeting um, a great committee chairman he, he had
1: a, a terrific executive skills and uh, you know when when Jefferson becomes president he sends a memo to his cabinet and it's the you know Jefferson would had a weakness for sniping at Washington's reputation But in this case he doesn't He says I want to run this exactly the way George Washington did <laughs> And nothing came out of that cabinet That he did not approve And that's the way it's going to be here um, And you know That was
0: uh, uh, That was important The other way that Washington is gaining In political power in Virginia Is by his role uh, As a local politician Which uh, I would Modern historians are prone to overlook because they don't it doesn't look like our kind of politics Um, But it's extraordinarily essential politics. Uh, Tip O'Neill may or may not have said all politics is local uh, But if he did he was right and if he didn't someone else was right Um, Especially in 1760s, Virginia Could you describe the importance of Washington as a as a member of a, a church vestry for crying out loud. And then as, a, as a justice of peace, because in some ways these are as important as being a member of the House of Burgesses. Yeah.
1: he The county court position, I think, was terribly important because they had so much uh, administrative responsibility, which he was very good at. Um, you know, they determined where the roads were going to be built and, you know, which of the neighbors was going to have to build them. Um, they determined where the ferries were going to be. They uh, you know who was going to get a license to open a bar? Uh, these were things that matter to people. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and uh, you know, local government is. Uh, <laughs> there's a great line I heard once from a friend when he was told he shouldn't run for an office because you know you, they pick up the trash. It's it's just too too close to the people. <laughs> you don't want to <laughs> be that close to the people. <laughs> um, but Washington was, and I think that was a great experience for understanding. Empathizing with folks, you know, he had been at Mount Vernon He, with his enslaved people. He hadn't been out among the regular folks that much. He had been in, as, as a military commander, but not in civilian life. And I think it was a terrific exposure. He understood how you have to jolly people along, how you have to, you know, trim a little on either side of the road to make sure everybody loses part of their uh, cropland um, and It was a way of building consensus and collaboration that um, was not natural to him as a young man and became completely instinctive to him. You've you've referred to his councils of war, then again, his use of the cabinet. He always wanted to include people in decision making. He was going to make the final decision, but people always got heard and he had a terrific talent for listening. And I think this experience was really part of it.
0: He um, even being a member of the vestry doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but um, churches are the biggest buildings in Virginia that are not courthouses, <laughs> um, and so you're con- you're c- commanding a bunch of art, uh, of construction money, uh, and they and his vestry does go on a building campaign. You can see the uh, relics of of it in Alexandria and Pohick Church. You can see it in Falls Church. Uh, there are a number of sanctuaries that they built. Um, which gave jobs to uh, free whites and also uh, hired enslaved people from other uh, slave owners. That's important. Uh, and vestries are in charge of poor relief and of uh, taking care of the elderly and the indigent and the young and the orphan. So that's a central part of the community as well.
1: Yeah, there is an empathy that he has to uh, demonstrate and show. Um, you know, oddly, the vestry also determined. Boundaries yep. between land. We could get oh, into boy. that,
0: but I'm not going to bore you with my dissertation. So just keep. Well, on. <laughs> that, as you know, that could be Bitter <laughs> yes, it's, it's it's for a property owning society, uh, both yeah. of people and land. This is one of the most important acts, political acts yeah. in Virginia, is determining so, boundaries.
1: Yeah. So so it, it all involved, first of all, reinforcing him his stature. You know, he's a person you can trust, and and I did do keep coming back to this in the book that. He had this talent for inspiring trust, and he, you know he learned it uh, dealing with real people with real problems,
0: you know, face to face. Well, I want to move on to the war, uh, to the revolution. But before we do that, I should uh, ID this uh, in, in the best podcast and radio host way. This is Historically Thinking. I'm Al Zambone, and I'm with David Stewart. He's the author of George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. Uh, Historically Thinking is now available. I should also add in a plethora of podcast platforms from Podchaser, Stitcher, as well as to your, your regular plain vanilla iTunes, Spotify, Google, Android, and even something called Deezer, which I really don't want to find out too much about. So if you're not able to find this on your podcast platform, you're probably not looking hard enough. Uh, David, let's uh, talk about uh, the, the revolution. Do you want to talk about the lead up to that or, or should we just go right into the Washington as a political general? Because I think we've we've, we've established some of the, the, the framework, as we've, as we've already suggested, for Sure, let's jump into the war. Yeah, let's jump into the war. So he, he, is, he, he is appointed general uh, for a variety of reasons. But, uh, you know, I, I've thought a lot about Washington as a political general. Um, that's become a very toxic term in the 20s, 21st century. But in some ways, uh, I think uh, having a, in a Republic, the American Republic, having a general who understands politics is really how you get a successful general.
1: Well, in fact, uh, I have been reminded by many former military people that uh, any military bureaucracy is highly political, and (laughs) political skills are very important. But I think especially in the Revolutionary War, because he is fighting this war on home ground. Uh, There is only one other national institution in addition to the Continental Army, and that's Congress. So he's got to get along with Congress. Congress is not a highly functional body. It does not have the cream of the crop um, in terms of uh, the delegates at the time as the war goes on. But Washington needs to both satisfy them and energize them to support him when necessary. And he also needs to show that he respects them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And those are complicated missions, which he takes on as he... You know, LEADS HIS ARMY FROM STATE TO STATE. HE HAS TO DEAL WITH DIFFERENT STATE GOVERNORS. HE HAS TO DEAL WITH uh, LOCAL OFFICIALS. Um, HIS ARMY IS USUALLY HUNGRY, um, OFTEN DOES NOT GET ALONG WELL WITH THE LOCAL RESIDENTS FROM WHOM THEY ARE COMMANDERING SUPPLIES AND OTHER MEANS OF SUPPORT. Um, they are des- HE'S DESPERATELY TRYING TO GET SUPPORT FROM DISTANT GOVERNORS AND DISTANT OFFICIALS I would guess that 80 percent of his paperwork is politics. It's it's not running the army. And,
0: you know, he's he's very good at it. I've been reading his correspondence with uh, Jonathan Trumbull, the governor of Connecticut, which yes. to hundreds of letters. And I've been thinking that Washington probably by 1783 knew more about Connecticut politics than anyone besides Jonathan Trumbull. Uh, <laughs> and sh- a hell of a lot more than he wanted to ever know about Connecticut politics or ever thought he would have to know. But he has to do that about every state. Um, yes. He could say the same thing about New York. He could say the same thing about Pennsylvania. You could say the same thing about Massachusetts. These, these local political matters are of immense importance to the army uh, to its supply and to it and to the number of soldiers who will join the ranks.
1: Yes, he's always looking for soldiers. He's always looking for uh, food and uh, blankets and, and anything he can
0: get. And and I also think uh, you can see this very markedly in the career of Nathaniel Green, who is deferential to gov- state governments, even when they don't exist. Um, and that's partly because I think greens a he's a Rhode Island legislative, a, a, a member of the legislature. And Washington, likewise, is always deferential to the political authority, uh, even when it's in a really bad shape, whether it be state or uh, or national.
1: Yeah, there's an early encounter where he's basically he's going to take charge of the army in Boston and you know, he's basically ambushed in, uh, or, or sandbagged in a pu- public event in New York. And they ask, there's some, they ask him. So when the war is over, you're going to go back and be a regular citizen. Right. And he doesn't miss a beat. He says, absolutely. Um, we do not, we do not submerge the citizen when we take on the uniform and it, it's a perfect response.
0: Yeah. Um, he is very good at that. And, uh, Let's move on beyond We I don't want to use up uh, too much time for this uh, as much as I want to. But uh, after the war, uh, his energies are focused on what now seems like the very quixotic plan of creating a canal that will link uh, the Chesapeake to the Ohio Valley. Um, and In many ways, this is one of the central tasks of his life. Uh, I don't think it's overstating it to say that. Uh, It combines so many different of his passions, uh, the West, uh, navigation, commerce, um, the Chesapeake, the Potomac, all these things linked together. Um, Could you describe how that uh, shows some of his political gifts and his political vision?
1: Yeah, there's a wonderful period about a month when he has to get legislation for doing this through the Virginia legislature, the Maryland legislature, Then have a bi state commission meet and approve a structure for this canal project, this river improvement project, and then get that structure approved by the Virginia legislature and the Maryland legislature. And he does it. You know, in a month. yeah, in a month. And getting it done today would be amazing. Madison, who is just beginning to work with him, uh, he's, he's much young, a much younger man uh, and has just sort of gotten in the presence of the great man and has been operating as draftsman as he would for many years, uh, is dazzled by how much Washington can get, can get done. And part of it is his stature. A lot of it is his energy and his drive. Um, he just does not take no for an answer. And, and it's not that he's pushing people around, but he's insistent and he's persuasive and he gets stuff done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and, it, and, and and let me just one other part yeah. of your question. I do think it shows this project also shows his vision, which was the United States should be a great nation. He often used the term empire mm-hmm. um, and that the Greatness was lying in the West, and that he could foresee millions and millions of people uh, in fruitful uh, industry across the continent. And that was a, a vision a lot of American leaders and of, of his contemporaries didn't have. They yeah. just were trying to get through day to day. So it, it 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 was a
0: distinguishing feature. He is worried about secession then. He's worried about the West seceding from the East, uh, the trans-Appalachian uh, America seceding from the East. Um, and, and some of the people who become high Federalists, like Rufus King, they could care less. Um, they don't even think maybe the West should be part of it. The nations should be smaller. There should be a Western state over there, a Western nation. Um, but that is never part of, ne- Washington never thinks that.
1: No, he doesn't. And, you know, oddly, in 1804, uh, Jefferson is writing a letter as well. The West may secede, but that's OK. You know, we it it, it will still be our child. Mm. And it's a, a, an odd attitude. And, and Washington never would have accepted it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's speak briefly about the Constitutional Convention. Uh, Washington's role is usually dismissed as he said nothing. <laughs> uh, he just sort of sat there, um, and yet uh, it's clear, given everything you've we've said already, uh, the way that Washington uses political power, uh, that he must have been a- absolutely essential to the. I-, I don't mean in getting bring it together. I don't mean in being the sort of figurehead and presenting it to the people afterwards. But somehow, in the day-to-day events, in ways that uh, it's like a black hole. We can see its effects, but we can't really see it with a visible naked eye. Um, somehow, Washington was the black hole at the center of the Constitutional Convention.
1: That's a great uh, metaphor. Uh, you know, he wanted three things that were simply non-negotiable. The national government had to had to have the power to levy taxes, which it didn't under the Articles of Confederation. He he insisted there had to be an executive uh, branch, which there hadn't wasn't under the Articles, um, and that then. National government had to be superior to the states. He was weary of having the states fight with each other, having them create all this um, trouble for the national government, simply thumb their noses at it. That was non-negotiable for him, and it was non-negotiable at the convention. Everybody knew that had to be there. And as long as he got that, he was not going to fool with the specifics. He was not a philosopher of politics. Um, And uh, I, I think... That was his bottom line. That turned out to be the Constitution's bottom line. And I genuinely believe that if he had not been there, if he had not supported the Constitution through the ratification process, it's better than even chance that we don't
0: get a new Constitution. We can—listeners um, can refer back to our, my conversation with Lori Glover about her on her book about Virginia ratifying the Constitution— Laurie gets into nice details about how Washington is not at the Virginia Ratification Convention, which is absolutely essential central moment uh, in the ratification of the convention. But boy, he is sure pulling the strings. Um, Harry Lee and James Madison, and uh, they are letting him know what's happening like every day, uh, yeah. what's going on. And, well and, and if if they don't ratify in Virginia he can't be president <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very <laughs> important point yeah um, so let's uh, as we wind down let's talk about the uh, what's the, Mary Thompson's lovely new book the my one un, the un my one unforgettable regret or un, uh, un, un I forget now the, the, the line but uh, slavery uh, yes which Washington uh, was certainly an enthusiastic uh I do say proponent or endorser, but participant in, uh, but gradually through the American revolution and into the Republic, one sees an increasing, increasing distaste for the entire institution. Um, but this is not, uh, not just a personal problem. It's a political problem and it requires a political solution as well. So could you discuss that briefly?
1: Yeah. He, until the war, he's, we just don't have any indication that he was thinking about slavery. That yep. It j- just was part of the air he breathed. Um, after the war, he is deeply troubled by it, and he would, on several occasions, says there must be a legislative solution. The northern states are, in fact, uh, following Pennsylvania and adopting uh, these uh, extended emancipation uh, laws. Uh, which can take a generation or two before uh, everyone is freed, but uh, does begin the process. Uh, and he wants that to be adopted, but he never comes out in public and supports it.
0: Why not? Uh, well, it's, 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 a, it's a strange thing. Uh, we know that he would have endorsed a Pennsylvania emancipation law. I mean, this despite pursuing people who um, liberated themselves from him, like Ona Judge, that somehow, I mean, don't get into the double-mindedness of it. We don't have to get into the double-mindedness of it now, but he still would have supported, a, a, I think, a, a gradual emancipation law in Virginia. Why Why didn't he do that openly?
1: Uh, I think I could offer several reasons, none of which he ever articulated. Okay. Um, I think he genuinely thought it in Virginia it was never going to get adopted, and it his um, endorsing it would simply reduce his influence without getting it adopted. Um, So he just didn't think he had sufficient political capital to make it happen, so he wasn't going to do it. You could also point to his web of family and social connections. Basically, he would have become a bit of an outcast if he had come out in favor of gradual emancipation. Um, There's no evidence that any Custis, Dandridge, or other Washington ever was particularly interested in this. Hmm. Um, and um, that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know? Even the for folks, George Washington.
1: Yeah, the folks closest to you. So if you think it's probably not going to work, and everybody ne- dear to you will hate you for it, it's a deterrent. Um, and I don't mean to excuse it. I'm, I'm simply trying to explain it. Uh, I think as president, he probably felt he had other fish to fry. Um, you know, he was trying to get this country to work, trying to get the Constitution to function. Um, and it is the post-presidential years that – where you would think, well, if there was a time for moral leadership, he, he never intended to go back into office. Um, that was the moment, and uh, he whiffed.
0: So, did you do you think that he intended his will to be a, a, a sort of a political statement?
1: He may have. I am more inclined to think that the will in which he uh, f- directs the freeing of his own slaves, not the ones Martha had inherited from her uh,
0: first husband, which are bound under under Virginia law to her. The heirs yeah. of his husband, of her husband, first husband. Yeah, so
1: he, he has he has to buy those people in order to free them, and he never has enough money to do it. But I think the, the emancipations directed in his will were more an act of personal atonement. Um, I think he did feel guilt. Um, at one point he says, I trust this would not be displeasing to my maker. Um, I also think... Um, he was a hard-headed guy. You know, he preached his whole life that you know you can rely on idealistic uh, people to be idealistic for short periods of time, but not more than that. That people will follow their own interest, which he meant self-interest. And he, I, I just, it's hard for me to see him th- thinking that you know because he did it, there was going to be this flood of emancipations,
0: um, and of course there wasn't. That's a really good point. Um... Yeah, in many ways, his uh, his emancipation comes at the end of that flurry of uh, of Virginia emancipations that last for about 17 years and then get cut off with Gabriel's rebellion. Um, yeah. And uh, well, uh, let's just move on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, one thing that I, I don't know if you talk too much about, but it's fascinating to me is Washington 1799, the year before his death, uh, he's had a complete falling out with Jefferson. And he is much more willing, I think, to act as a federalist political operator. And one of my favorite images of Washington is him. We talked about his persistence in argument, uh, his persistence in wearing John Marshall down to run for Congress, uh, (laughs) walking him up and down the veranda. uh, And I think even ambushing him in the morning uh, when Marshall thought he was sneaking out ahead of the general, but the general was up. Um, which was a a immensely consequential act for for your career as a a litigator, um, among other things, uh, that Washington got uh, marshaled into Congress, uh, then he got Patrick Henry to run for uh, the House, the Assembly. Um, He was trying to set up things in order to uh, assist the Federalist cause in Virginia, uh, and eventually ended up... His legacy of Supreme Court jurisprudence by getting Marshall into the into Congress. Um, Could you describe that briefly? Uh, Because it's it's a a wonderful. It's a in many ways his death means that he doesn't suffer political defeat with Jefferson's uh, election. Um,
1: That that would have been a very painful moment for him. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, he had become you know he denounced partisanship much of his career but by the late 1790s he's he's a partisan Mm -hmm. um there's this terribly awkward moment where he's setting up the trying to set up the army that will meet the the french in the quasi war thank god it was never needed and you know He agrees with the other fellows there, including Hamilton, that well, they won't have any
0: Republican officers because you can't trust them. No, I mean, Um, and Morgan's letters to him are, I mean, which I know something about, are fascinating because Morgan is assessing every Virginia officer based on their political loyalties. Yeah, very clear about that. It's uncomfortable
1: for us. I mean, that these people could be patriots, you know, really. Mm. Um, And he. I think, is mortified that Virginia is becoming Jeffersonian Republican. And so, as you say, he was trying to reinforce the uh, Federalists in Virginia, and that is why he tries to recruit Marshall. He can see Marshall's a talented guy. Everybody can see that who comes into uh, contact with him. Um, He's also known he's a favorite of mine as a historical figure. He's known as a guy who enjoys a good time Mm -hmm. and, you know, (laughs) likes to sort of hang out with his pals and, you know, have a few brews. And I I think Washington wants to get him focused on, you know, hey, this is important stuff and we need to, you know, uh, provide the leadership um, of this cause. And so that's why he presses. And, you know, he calls on Patrick Henry, who was a sick man. He was a sick man. They had been on the outs some of the time. They had been allies, but had always had a, a strong personal respect for each other. Um, and and he, you know, pulls Patrick Henry off the bench. Um, he he wants Virginia not to forsake federalism, and uh, it's a rearguard action. Uh, would he have succeeded if he had lived longer? Uh,
0: I tend to doubt it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's conclude by. Asking you uh, where you conclude, what's a master politician and how does Washington meet your definition of a master politician? You
1: know, it's it, the definition I'm not sure is going to be universal. But mine is um, that you earn trust and that you build consensus, that you lead by example, but not by direction. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, appreciation of Washington. Someone wrote, where it's, I can't replicate it word for word, but the observer basically said, you know, he leads in such a way that everybody thinks it was their idea. <laughs> and, you know, that is remarkably, wonderfully skillful. Uh, he had the talent of listening to people and of Hearing them for real, uh, Adams called it his gift of silence. Mm. Uh, and a- Adams could appreciate a gift that he didn't possess. He, and he knew he didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, he was able to show people that he was not crazy for power. Also, mm-hmm. uh, the resignation from the army in 1783, the res- resignation from the presidency. Uh, were acts of great leadership and modeled behavior uh, for the nation um, for generations. You know, when we think of what we want as a president, it's pretty much Washington. It's a guy who is or a person, a person, I should say, who is um, has some dignity, has integrity, uh, has some modesty and cares about the people, not himself. And Washington, I think, scores on each of those points, and I think that is a master politician. If he's lucky, or she is lucky... And effective. It'll be good times when you leave office. That is often a matter of luck and not the politician's achievement. but I th- that's how I see it. And I think he, he was actually lucky in that regard, as he had been lucky in so many things.
0: Well, my guest today has been David O. Stewart. He's the author of numerous books, but most recently, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. David, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. My great pleasure. Thanks a lot, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.